Well, good evening, Moody Church. What a joy and a pleasure to be able to be with you again uh, as we continue our worship by diving back into God's Word. Uh, Tonight we are, as uh, Pastor Bill said, we're wrapping up our our quick two weeks looking at some of the churches from Revelation 2 and 3. So let's open up our Bibles, let's turn on your Bible apps, whichever you've got, and uh, let's read beginning in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, some hard words in there, some, some kind of harsh criticism. And well, now that we're kind of in the social media age, we're firmly entrenched in it. Uh, I, I think that, you know, specifically the comment sections in all of our social media, you know, I'm thinking about Twitter, I'm thinking Facebook, Instagram. I presume the comment sections on TikTok are this way, uh, that they're just filled with unwarranted and unasked for criticism. It seems like, especially for people with larger platforms and followings, they can't really say anything right. We've become so used to people reacting inappropriately overblown and negative to even the smallest things that a lot of this just now doesn't even register to us. Like, if you post a picture of a hot grill with burgers cooking on it, somebody might comment, you should have gone with a plant-based option, you monster. You know, uh, if uh, you put a video up on Instagram of you accomplishing a personal best in the gym as an inspiration to your friends and family, well, somebody's going to criticize your form. If you put a thought from a Bible verse from your morning reading up, somebody's going to criticize your interpretation. And if you write a thoughtful tweet calling for Christians to love one another in the midst of difficult and challenging and awful times, well, somebody's definitely going to call you a communist. Famous people and famous pastors in particular seem to be able to draw the wackos out of the woodwork. And so we have adapted as a culture to tune out criticism, to tune out hard words. They're just constantly coming at us. And the problem with that is that when we encounter real criticism, real hard words that we need to hear that are directed at us from God's word or just from people in real life, we have a tendency to get callous and not think that it applies to us. There is a time to kind of have thick skin, but there is also a time to have a soft heart that's open to hear what God says. So as we kind of follow our outline today, uh, we're going to be looking at this passage just step by step, and and we're going to see what is it that we need 
to pay attention to? What hard word might be applying to us here in 2020 that also applied to this church in Asia some long time ago? Well, the first question when we deal with criticism, when we deal with a hard word, should we even listen? If we should, why? Why should we listen? Who is giving us that criticism? Well, we know from last week and we know from reading the previous chapter that, well, this is Jesus through John giving very specific words to his audience. Verse 14 says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So we already talked about kind of the context of this last week and the setup for these letters. And if you missed it, you know, it's up on YouTube. By all means, go check it out. Uh, This is Jesus speaking. This is not just Jesus passively just saying, oh, here's here's a thing. This is Jesus who we just have seen the previous chapter in a glorious vision, so white hot with with amazing glory that John can't even look at him, okay? It's he, he can't find words to describe how majestic and awesome his God is in this moment. And, and let's see what it says here. The words of the amen. It's an interesting phrase. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And it sort of harkens to mind how God addresses Moses from the burning bush. That I am sent you. It's just one of those sort of unique phrases that only is going to get applied to God. The faithful and true witness. Well, this is, this is courtroom language, right? This is his testimony is reliable. He is an unimpeachable character witness. What he says can be believed, can be trusted. The beginning of God's creation. Now, this is, this is the way this is rendered in the ESV, and some of you might kind of read this and go, well, that's, that's a little bit of a sketchy turn of phrase. Uh, this is not to be confused with the idea that Jesus is a first being created by God. That's not actually what it's saying. The word in Greek is also translated as the first cause of creation, the ruler, the authority over creation. I think the NIV is very helpful here as it translates it as ruler. So this first verse establishes that Jesus is God, Jesus is trustworthy, and Jesus is the one who is sending them this letter with some pretty colorful phrases in it. When God speaks to us, we would do very well to listen. Each of the seven letters concludes, all right, so the very last verse of this letter with, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just reinforcing that point that everything we're about to look at is important because God said it. So now the letter skips the pleasantries and gets right down to the yelling. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I've got to confess, I, I'm a sucker for some good yelling. Like, I that... Mm, that is a, that's a good tirade right there. And in fact, the yelling is what this particular letter to this church is known for. I will spit you out of my mouth is, it's just memorable, okay? You don't tend to forget that language. And churches are often warned when somebody is preaching from this text, you don't want to be a Laodicea, okay? Jesus is slapping them in the face to get their attention, 
But then we kind of look at it and we're like, well, all right, lukewarm, right? What, what's so bad about that? Why did he choose that word? And this is going to bring us to the second point on our outline, which is Christ knows us, right? He knows us in and out, right? This is a rich and multi-layered verse, and people have debated how best to interpret it since not long after it was written somewhere around 90 AD. So before we break this verse down, we should learn a little bit more about the people to whom it's written. So who were the Laodicedans? Seans. Well, it's a super wealthy mid-sized city. They were extremely self-sufficient to the extent that uh, when there was an earthquake some decades before this letter was written, all the other towns in this region in Asia took Roman money in order to rebuild. But they didn't need to do that. They had a well-stocked treasury. Okay? They uh, were a major banking center. They had a thriving textile industry. They were a center for ophthalmology, which is eye doctors, eye cures. They were located at a major uh, commercial crossroads, so they were well-suited to capitalize in all of those fields on everything coming around them. They knew wealth. They knew self-sufficiency. And, you know, we're separated by almost 2,000 years and a lot more miles than I can calculate. I'm not good at math or geography. But we share some similarities with that, right? Chicago is a wealthy city. We have great gifts. We have great resources. I mean, as far as cities go, ours and theirs were pretty impressive. But one thing that we have over them is our drinking water. Uh, Archaeology tells us that their city was fed their water from an aqueduct that was piping in uh, hot spring water that wasn't all that far away. And what we also know now through archaeology is that that water was really rich in mineral content, so much so that it was really not all that drinkable. Like they could use it for other purposes, but it was straight up gross, okay? And this is sort of a cultural identifying sore spot for them. Like we've all got it. All the cities in this country have it, right? Chicago, we're known for deep dish pizza. We're known for brutal winter. We are known for our sports teams. Uh, Philadelphia has a, has a reputation historically as the birthplace of the American experiment. Uh, they've got Philly cheesesteaks. Uh, Las Vegas, entertainment, gambling. New York, uh, garbage-filled streets and cardboard crust pizza. It's the advantage of doing church online that, you know, you can boo all you want. I can't hear you. No, I'm just kidding. We love, we love you brothers and sisters from New York. Just having a little bit of fun. Moving on. Why am I talking about their drinking water? Well, realizing that there is a specific note here, that it's a sore spot for them, that their water was tepid and largely disgusting, it helps us to really dial in and realize this comment is not just some random metaphor, some random thing pulled out of the ether. This is a sharp criticism designed to poke kind of a sore spot, at one of the few things that they could not have claimed that they, they had going for them, and it's to help get their attention and remind them that Jesus knows everything about them. He's not distant. He's not offering, you know, just some general proverbs like, hey, here's some things that all churches should probably do. He's saying, I see you, I see who you are, I know you, and therefore you ought to be listening to what I have to say. Now, you don't need to know this about the drinking water in order to appreciate the verse, but it does remind us that these are real people. 
They really lived, they were really there, Christ really spoke to them, and they had problems not dissimilar from our own at times that we can learn from if we have ears to hear. So, would that you were either cold or hot. Well, we have an easy time understanding hot, right? We use terms like on fire for the Lord. We, we use fire emoji in our, our social media. It's generally a word that we think, well, okay, I get it. It's a good thing. I'm fired up. I'm excited. And similarly, we understand the use of cold as a negative word. There's negative connotation. There's negative emotional uh, things wrapped up with that. But then this kind of brings up the very valid question. Is Jesus saying he wants them to be more cold? Is he telling them to be more sinful? Well, in a word, no. Okay. But in a longer, more potentially controversial answer, kind of. Hold on, don't type your email yet. Okay. I believe, my opinion, that in a manner of speaking, Jesus is actually saying something not that far from that. It's, he's not saying he wants them to be more sinful. But I believe he recognizes, as we should, that they are in a far more dangerous position uh, if they are professing faith, if they're kind of saved, but their lives don't reflect in any way that God is real, okay? If they were all the way cold, living unrepentantly sinful, self-centered lives with no thought for God, they would be in no danger of thinking that they were saved and that they were fine. Okay? If they were living like the devil, they would be in a position that many of you watching may have remembered from your past, or maybe you're in now, where you wake up one day and you're, you take stock of your life and you realize, I, I don't have something that I need. I don't have purpose. I don't have the meaning. I, I don't have a way to deal with the guilt that I have. C.S. Lewis writes about it as this desire for something that this world cannot satisfy. By complaining about their being lukewarm, I think Christ is offering a criticism to them that all Christians need to be wary of. If, we've, if we think we've taken care of that whole get right with God thing, and we can ignore the warning signs that are popping up in our life, we are in a dangerous spot. Uh, if I told you or somebody told you, a doctor told you that you had cancer and you went to the doctor's office and the doctor said, great, I got your cure right here and he gives you a syringe filled with sugar water, well, I've got news for you. You still have cancer, but now you're not looking for the cure, okay? If you believe that you have dealt with everything and you just sort of tune out the words that God has for you, this is a rough spot. So like we saw in Ephesus last week, all Christians are open to feeling their love, their devotion to God grow cold. Like in Ephesus, the church at Laodicea had some, at some point, forgotten their first love. Unlike Ephesus, however, Christ is saying, I know you, I know your works, and they are good for nothing. Like your awful local drinking water, I will spit you out of my mouth if something doesn't change. So while Ephesus had all the right works but lacked real love and zeal for the Lord, Laodicea didn't even have those works. And so it makes me ask the question, how many of us are known as Christians by our actions? If you hadn't told your coworkers that 
you're going to church every Sunday or you're taking your kids to Awana on Wednesday night when things are back to normal, uh, or that you've got a small group at, at somebody from church's house on Friday night, would they be able to tell there was something different about you from the way that you act, from you, the way that you treat other people, from the way that you speak, the grace that is present in your life? One of my favorite Christian writers, J.C. Ryle, put it this way, there is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day which many have and think that they have enough. A cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and is worth nothing. Well, practically speaking, what does this lukewarmness look like? In a word, I, I think it's complacency. It's being inoculated against the gospel. This is a church that seems to have begun with the Ephesian problem, but then they just let it run wild over everything. This is a church that was just likely founded by a companion of the Apostle Paul, and yet their wealth, the cares of the world, their jobs, perhaps being stuck in their homes for some reason, became snares to their affections, and their faith cooled off. Not so cooled off that they abandon it completely. They're not being told that they're professing atheism, but it cooled off enough that it's, it's good for nothing. So again, I ask, what, what might this look like for us here in Chicago? Well, I think it's assuming salvation. It's focusing on more important, practical concerns. It's thinking that we're all good Christians here, no need to preach the gospel anymore. This is a people who felt totally self-sufficient. And, and don't get me wrong, okay, I'm not trying to put things, words in their mouth, put things on them. I'm willing to bet good money that if you were to be able to go back in time and ask any of them how they were saved, well, they would tell you that they were saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, but their lives told a different story. Friends, don't take Christ's church for granted. Don't take the gracious gifts that God has given us for granted. Paul says in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, the letter continues. The complaint continues, I should say, in the form of some contrasts to their self-image. Christ knows them, and he knows us, and he needs to wake them up to their true uh, reality. Verse 17 says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He's saying, I know you as you really are. And you may have convinced yourself that you are this wealthy, self-sufficient person, but you're lying to yourself. You think you're self-sufficient. I see that you are wretched. You think you're the envy of everyone in the region. Well, I know you to be pitiable. You believe your wealth will protect you? You are poor in every way that really matters. You think because of your local doctors that your eyes are the best? Look, I, I know that you can't even see yourselves. You think that you guys are these great, well-dressed fashion moguls because uh, you are naked with your shame on display for all. Friends, this is, this is okay, because fortunately Christ doesn't just berate them, drop the mic, and peace out, okay? He is not going to leave them here. This is his church. He's going to tell them what they need to do. 
So why are we listening to him? Because he's God. He knows us and he knows what we need. Verse 18 says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Buy from me gold. He's saying, take those resources that you think are so important and put them to good use. And now this is not just, at least I don't believe, this is just about church giving, although that is a hugely important spiritual issue. But I think in a more broad sense, he's saying, take where you've invested all your time and your resources, which is clearly into wealth, and invest that in treasure in heaven. Use everything you've got, your time, your energy, yes, your money, to further the kingdom and to bless one another and to honor God. Seems to I echo the words of Isaiah 55 for me. Uh, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Saying, invest in the things that really matter, that only God can provide. Well, it says, white garments, uh, he references, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. So the naked comment, the nakedness comment, is worth taking a minute to focus on as well. As you read through your Bible, you should take note, uh, if you haven't done so already, of every mention of nakedness or uncovering someone's nakedness. It is a fascinating topic of study that people really judge you for calling a fascinating topic of study. Right? Uh, it begins in the garden, before the fall in Genesis 2. Right? Adam and Eve are naked and they're not ashamed because they have no sin, nothing is corrupted. But in Genesis 3, after they've sinned, after the fall, all of a sudden they recognize they are in big trouble. And so Adam sows fig leaves and, and to try and cover it up and not realizing that, look, only God can provide an appropriate covering, and God does. He gives them animal skins. A sacrifice has to be made in order to make atonement for the horrible sin that was committed in the garden, which is great foreshadowing of the gospel. But nakedness in the Bible always represents the shame and guilt of our sin laid bare before God and man. And here it has all of that significance, plus the fact that Laodicea had a special connection to clothing because of the rich and kind of rare black wool that they were known for. And so when Christ is offering them white garments, he's saying far better than any animal skin or anything that you can do. You can't cover your own shame. You cannot take care of your own sin. No wealth, no clothing, no works, although you do not even have those. Nothing that you do will be enough I have to provide you what you need. It has to be my righteousness. Christ's righteousness is the only way that can cover our nakedness. Well, again, here, when he mentions blindness, I mean, that's just self-explanatory. They cannot see their problem. They can't see their nakedness, and they can't see their need. Well, why do all these details matter? As we looked at last week, the messages being sent out by John that are given to him by Jesus, who is seen holding the angels in his hand, walking amongst the churches, reminding them that they don't know their true state. You've built up all this silliness around you as though it were God, as though it could save you. It can't define you. It can't take care of you. 
I see you as you really are, and I care enough to discipline you so that you would turn, repent, and be saved. This is the good news. This is the fourth point in our outline, that he loves us enough to discipline us. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered, and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those whom I loved, good news, You are still loved, he's saying. I am at the door. I haven't left you. This is a curious thing that gets overlooked. Verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. So I'm here. I'm with you, but I'm not inside. Okay? This this verse is curious because it often gets used in an evangelistic sort of way. And that's, that's a great thing to do. It's a great image. It's an accurate image But that's not actually the context here. He's not speaking to a bunch of people that have never heard the gospel. John is writing, he's sending Jesus' message to a church, people who profess faith. And this is something that is terrifying to think about. Okay, So do not harden your hearts. He's saying, listen, I'm here. I'm knocking on the door. Answer the door. Well, how do we answer the door? Even if we've already at some point says, all right, I trust Christ for my salvation, we still need to repent and confess our sin. Not just once, but at all times. We need to acknowledge that we need Christ to sustain us, that we need him, as the song says, every hour, that we need him with us. We submit ourselves in love to God to use as he would see fit. Uh, I think of Romans 12, 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will, excuse me, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God is faithful to answer his people when they cry out to him for help. To the one who conquers this can still be you. This is an amazing promise that if we will trust him, if we will endure through hard times, through good times, that we will sit with him on his throne forever and ever in fellowship with the God who made us for that fellowship with himself. And as we listen to these words, we should all be taking stock of our own lives. Is this speaking to me? Do I need to take this getting yelled at? Well, what happened to Laodicea? Uh, For the end of the story, we have to turn from the Bible to archaeology again for a second. The Laodicean legacy of being lukewarm was not the final word. This wasn't the end. Okay, We now know that this church survived. They endured Domitian's reign. The city became the seat of a Christian bishop. It became the site of a major Christian council in the fourth century. Archaeologists have currently discovered more than 20 churches and chapels throughout the region, showing they blew up. Right? The largest of those churches occupies a full city block, not unlike Moody Church here in Chicago. So if there's one thing I want you to take from this letter, it's not just the yelling at, it's that there's hope. 
okay, there's good news. If we will listen to the words that God has for us about our own lives, about our own hearts, there is hope. Nothing is too hard for God. This is a message about the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises, to see us to the end, to answer us when we cry out to him for mercy, and to make us the kind of people that he would have us to be. He is God. He knows us. He knows what we need, and he loves us enough to discipline us. They needed to repent and turn to God, and right now I think we need the same thing. After watching the murder of George Floyd this past week, I've had to face the facts. I've had to to look at my own life, and I think a lot of us have been asking hard questions of ourselves that maybe our actions in loving one another could be considered lukewarm. How many times have we heard of injustice like we've seen this week, and the best that we can manage to come up with is to post something on social media about it and then go back to our normal lives as though nothing were happening. This didn't happen in our community, maybe, so it's something that it's easy for us to turn a blind eye to. And I don't want to throw anybody under the bus with me, but I earnestly believe that if the church in America had been doing its job, if we had been consumed with the love of God, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and truly loved our neighbor as ourselves, tragedies like this wouldn't happen anymore. I'm not suggesting that there's one right way for us to deal with this. But I'm suggesting that we ought to be praying earnestly that the Spirit would help us to love one another better in light of tragedies like this. This is a critical moment for the people of God. Now is the time to repent, to call on God, to act, and to bring real revival. Let's learn from the inspiring story of what happened in Laodicea. That city could be our city. And if we earnestly seek God, there is nothing he cannot do. Is the arm of the Lord too short to save? It's rhetorical. No, it's not. Okay, why can't God awaken an entire generation of Christians who have allowed their love for God and for each other to go lukewarm or even cold? They were content to rely on themselves for their problems, and it didn't work for them, and it won't work for us now. Let us trust God to act. Let us throw ourselves on the mercies of God and trust him. Let's be the kind of people who are consumed by love for Jesus and love for one another. Let's pour ourselves out to be used by God however he would use us and let our vision be one of a Christ so glorious and all-powerful and amazing that we have no choice but to share the gospel with everyone that we meet and that we know. What what could God do with a church filled with people like that? Well, I don't know. But I know that God's plans are significantly bigger and better than any of our imaginations. So let's trust God. Let's endeavor to live not lukewarm, but with white, hot, singular purpose for the gospel. If you'll pray with me. Lord, bring revival. We grieve and we mourn for what has happened this week And yet we rejoice that this is not the end, that you are coming on the clouds of glory, that you will make all things new, that you will bring justice, and that you are faithful, that you love your people. You will not abandon us no matter what has happened, no matter what we do, if we will but turn to you. Lord, revive us, revive our city, revive our country, and and do a mighty work in our time. 
Give us the privilege of, of serving you in whatever way you would have us, big or small. Lord, fill us with your love. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for all that he did. We thank you that he is our righteousness, and we thank you that he is coming again. In all these things we pray in his holy name. Amen.